That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. Get to the chopper! And they mostly come at night. Mostly. Please. We can kill it. What the hell are we supposed to use, man? Harsh language? Get away from her, you bitch! Hello and welcome to the 50th episode of After the Ending. I am Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And it's 50 episode ago go <laughs> That's right. We've got a, a 50th episode spectacular for everybody today that we're pretty excited about. Yeah, for those of us who didn't think we'd make it to 50 episodes, well, you never, you know, you never told us that. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> right. And thank you to everyone out there for not telling us, you guys are never going to last 50 episodes. Yeah. We appreciate that. You all had faith. You knew we'd do it. And thank you for listening to each and every one of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's obviously 50 episodes. This is kind of, we feel like, just the start. But in the podcasting world, there is definitely sort of a, a milestone feel to the 50th episode of a, of a podcast. I don't know if it's like that in every every genre. I think television is more like how many seasons you go and stuff like that. But in the in the podcasting world, there's something special about hitting that number 50. And so, you know, we're pretty jazzed. Although technically, Phil, yes, this yeah. is kind of like our 64th episode if you count all of our mini episodes. That's true. But, but uh, yeah, it's the 50th full episode, but there have been a few mini episodes. Right, but for those right. of you just joining us who just discovered us, uh, it's perfectly fine to listen to this 50th episode. And you've got all those wonderful 49 other ones to go back and listen to so all in all by the end of this episode you will have done after the endings for 100 movies that's right it's pretty exciting but don't worry there's no continuity i mean maybe a few in jokes but like phil <laughs> said you can start listening now and uh, this will all make perfect sense but just in case you are a new listener if you were uh, drawn in by the lore of the movies we're doing today phil why don't you tell people what movies we're doing and maybe why don't we review our kind of our our format and our our rules even though we're throwing our rules out the window today <laughs> that's true yeah well what we do is we take two films and then Mike and myself decide to uh, see what happened after the ending of that film. And we do the day after, the immediate aftermath, and the long term. And it can be days, weeks, years, millennia, whatever. Uh, neither Mike or myself know what the other one's written. So we're surprised, shocked, and awed by the other one, as you all are as well. And today, for the 50th, well, usually we do films which don't have sequels. But today, we're going to mix that up a bit. And we're going to do sequels, well... Go after the ending of Predator from 1987 and Aliens from 1986 because they're both brilliant movies and the sequels that they did get after that weren't quite as good or as promising as they could have been. So we thought, let's do it our way. That's right. You know, I mean, Predator 2, we've talked about a couple times recently on the show. We both enjoy Predator yeah, 2, yeah. but I think even you and I can agree it's not the sequel that we wanted necessarily. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. And I think with, with Aliens, I mean, let's be honest, you know, Alien 3... Was. Alien Three was very stylish looking. It did have some very good moments, but yeah, it wasn't the. Uh, it wasn't the, after Aliens. It's sort of it's all gone downhill, really. Yeah, I'm going to go a little further out onto the limb there, Phil, and I'm just going to say that I think Alien Three is largely a pile of crap. <laughs> um, pardon my language, but I, I've tried to like that film so many times over the years, and I, I keep going back to it every couple of years because I'm a huge David Fincher fan. Yeah, and you know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to find the Fincher brilliance in it, and I just, I, I just generally can't. I don't like the movie. I can't get into it. I don't enjoy it. It's it's just not a film. Like you said, it has some good moments, but really it's just not a very good movie in my opinion. Yeah, the, direct, the director's cut does fix some of the problems, but even then, I don't know what – maybe is it is it too bleak for an alien film? Is that, yeah. Maybe, uh, yeah, gets, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. It just gets – it just doesn't – it just doesn't work for me. I think one of the best alien things in recent years has been the Alien Isolation video game because that recaptured some of the, the suspense and horror and – 
downright alienness of the films of the original one. So right, right. Yeah, I, I was hoping that Alien Covenant might have gone some way to fix that, but I haven't seen it yet. But just seeing reviews and things, I'm not that sure. Well, well, I'll keep an open mind till I've seen it myself. Yeah, well, well, and we should point out because a lot of people will be listening to this after they see Alien Covenant. Uh, yeah. As the time of this recording, it has not opened yet in the U.S. or the U.K., so neither of us have seen it. Um, so we're going into this blind of anything that might happen in Alien Covenant. But I do like the fact we're sort of tying into a movie that's currently in theaters. So hopefully, it's kind of a you know fresh on people's minds, and they'll enjoy this episode just a little bit extra because of that. Yeah, yeah, so it uh, should be good. And we'll also be doing our top 10 films. Yeah, for those just joining us, we do 100 years of Hollywood and 100 episodes where we take our top 10 films of a particular year. And, you know, we then go back and forth and see which ones were our favourites of that year. But this time, because the 50th, we're looking back over all the 50 previous years that we've already covered and picking our top 10 from them. But we'll get to that once we've done uh, after the ending. So shall we begin, Mike? Yeah, let's jump into things. What do you say we start with... Uh... Well, let's start with Predator. How's that sound? Get to the chopper! <laughs> well, that was a bad one. But yeah, there we go. We've got the bad uh, yeah, for impression. New, for new listeners as well, you should also know that Phil specializes in terrible impressions, and I'm I'm right there next to him with them as well. Yeah, I'm getting quite good at being really bad. <laughs> That's right. And that is a talent, my friend. Yeah. That is yeah, a talent. I, I think some of them started off quite good as well, but... <laughs> I, I, I think it's easy to do good impressions, but I think it takes a real talent to do a good bad impression. Yeah, so bad, but you still know who it is. That's right, exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> but if you don't like it, you know, you could try to fish. There, <laughs> there, and there's one of those famous in-jokes. If you don't get that joke, go back and listen to several several episodes. <laughs> so, many, so many callbacks, it's great. Yes, it's yes, like, might be a few more as we go tonight. All right, well, let's start with Predator, Phil. Why don't you uh, give us just a touch of background on that film? Okay, Predator 1987, directed by John McTiernan, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Carl Weathers, Kevin Peter Hall, lots of other big muscly men, and a team of men go in the jungle. There's a predator in the jungle, and Arnie is the only one who survives, apart from a female rebel who did also uh, liber- liberated from a camp. There you go. I think I think most people know the story of Predator by now. I don't I don't think we need to go into too much detail. So then, yes, that's uh, that's what happened in the film. So it ended with Arnie and the girl on the helicopter just being rescued after the predator had done the self-destruct, and that's where we ended. So, Mike, what have you got for the day after? Well, can I say, before I, I give you my actual day after, I was working really hard where I wanted to have in each segment that Arnold wanted to do something. And, like, for example, like in the first segment, he was trying to, like, save a rabbit. So he would yell, get to the hopper! <laughs> and then I thought there was something like where he'd be, like, in a supermarket and he could be like, get to the shopper! Uh, but I, I couldn't really make it work, but I really, <laughs> really wanted to. I'm not sure if that's a good or a bad thing that you couldn't make it work. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's probably better for everyone involved. But, <laughs> but boy, I, I tried for a while. I mean, I'm just going to tell you before I before I abandoned that idea. I'm just thinking about what rhymes with chopper now. Yeah, not a lot of good stuff. It turns no, out because no. I went through most of the alphabet, and a lot of them are a little <laughs> obtuse. I thought of like Arnold versus like a school crossing guard. I'd be like, get to the stopper. <laughs> but, you know, it's just it's it's a stretch. So yes, I'm going to yes. let that one die. Okay, well, I'm glad you did. Thank you. <laughs> okay, okay, let's take it. Let's take it away. What's your day after? Okay, well, Dutch and Anna's helicopter has barely even touched the ground when they are swept away by military and government agents. They're separated, and Dutch is debriefed for almost twenty hours straight. It turns out that the U.S. government has been aware of these creatures for many years, but Dutch is the first person to ever survive an encounter with one of them. 
They have him work with the sketch artist, describe the creature's technology to scientists, and interrogate him intensely about the creature's tactics. After his debrief is over, Dutch is approached by a military figure, a man with no rank insignia visible on his uniform. He introduces himself as General McTiernan and says to Dutch, I've got a job offer for you, and that's my day after. General McTiernan, nice, like it. Yeah, a little tribute to I think John McTiernan is one of the the great action directors of the eighties. So oh yeah, he can I thought a little a little tribute direct the hell out of an action scene. That is for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, how about your day after then, Phil? Okay, I think there'll be some similarities, but as we've already said, we neither of us know what the other one's written. So please bear with us. Uh, right. Dutch had been held in quarantine for days. He doesn't see Hannah again. He had been debriefed many times. At first, he thought they didn't believe him, but then he realizes that they believed every word and he's being kept prisoner. He's eventually moved to a high-tech security base. He is scanned, tested, both physically and mentally, and he's often visited by a man, Special Agent Peter Keyes. Dutch's only solace is exercising. He knows he needs to keep his strength up for whatever may come. That's my day after. Now, let me see if my movie brain is working today. Peter Keyes, would that not be the government agent from E.T.? No, no, it's still... Uh. Predator. No, it's Predator 2. It's uh, Gary Boosie's character. That's what it is. Okay, all right. I knew I, knew I recognized the name. But uh, that's right. who it is. Right, okay. So a bit of crazy Gary Boosie in the mix. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> okay, so what have you got for your immediate aftermath? All right, well, General McTiernan explains to Dutch that they've been putting together an anti-predator squad. It's an elite cadre of soldiers that have been trained specifically to take on these alien warriors. I want you to train them, McTiernan says to Dutch. Dutch looks at McTiernan, smiles, lights a cigar, and says, Where do I sign? I can't do Arnold, but... <laughs> Where do I sign? I guess is that a little better? Yeah, yeah a little it's, better. Yeah. It's good, bad, right? We, yeah, yeah. We've already covered that. I, I want to try it now, but I'm just, I know it's going to sound dreadful. <laughs> Shortly thereafter, Dutch meets his squad. They look like something out of an 80s movie a ragtag team of rough and tumble types. Brilliant. Thank you. Peckinpah, Russell, Jolie, Diesel, Weaver, Lee, Greer, Norris, Bronson, Eastwood, and Blunt. Dutch gets to work training the team, teaching them how to think like a predator and how to work around their superior technology. He trains them to think low-tech and to improvise. And slowly but surely, and often set to some inspirational rock songs in the background, <laughs> the team begins to form a unit, and more importantly, a family. Excellent. I think that's going to be a sweaty montage, though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah, for <laughs> sure. It's gonna, and it might even have a touch of the Tom, Tom Cruise and Top Gun, like, let me check my watch in slow motion while I flex my bicep. <laughs> I need to drink some of this water. Oh, it's all <laughs> spilling all over my face. Oh. Right. <laughs> exactly. Oh, 80s films, brilliant. Gotta love them. <laughs> oh, and that's a hell of a lineup as well for a ragtag team of predator killers. Yeah, yeah, I thought so too. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. All right, so how about your immediate aftermath, Phil? Okay, weeks have passed by and Dutch is still being held prisoner. One night he's woken by an alarm and explosions, followed by screams. There's a whirring, screeching sound around his door which disappears in a cloud of dust. In steps a nightmare. Another one of the creatures that killed Dutch's men stands before him. Dutch tenses, ready to attack, but the gun on the creature's shoulder drops down. The creature holds out its hands and in a gargling, gruff voice speaks, Come with me if you want your well to live. Nice, I like that. Thank you, but that's, uh, that's, I'm going to leave it there for now. I like it, all right, I can't wait to see where it goes. Hey, what have you got then for your long term? Bring us home. Okay, well, it's less than a year later when Dutch and his team take on their first predator in the wild Serengeti of Africa. Despite all their training, the predator still takes its toll on the team, killing off Jolie, Diesel, and Peckinpah before they can bring it down. A few more years go by, and the predator incursions begin to happen more and more frequently. 
Every time they come to Earth, Dutch and his team confront it, and the team usually loses a member or two in the process. They're immediately replaced with new recruits, but it's a regularly changing roster, and the job has a short lifespan. Finally, one day General McTiernan comes to Dutch and tells him they have a new mission. It turns out the government scientists have been using the last several planet landings to track the Predator's roots. They've used that data to find the Predator's home world. What do you think, Dutch? General McTiernan says. You ready to lead this team into space and crush your enemies? It's a mission you might not come back from. Dutch smiles, lights a cigar, and says, Don't worry, I'll be back. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> and, and that's the end. Oh, no, I like that. At least until the third film. Yeah, wow. Which is Arnold it's... in space killing predators. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I think yeah. it'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> I like yeah. I'd oh, watch yeah. that movie. Yeah, they should. They need to make that. I mean, filmmakers, right. I know they're, just, they're probably just scared to get in touch with us because the ideas are just so cool. I know. I think they're a little intimidated by our wealth of, of ideas, you know? Yeah. Just keep knocking them out, you know, every week. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear how yours wraps up. I want to see what happens with this with this predator who's apparently not there to kill Arnold. So, yeah, well, it's so a, bring it home. Certainly. I hope he doesn't talk much more because it, you know, hurts the throat. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, that sounded a little painful. Long term. Dutch wondered whether he was dreaming. He was now sat in an alien spacecraft heading up into the stars. The creature sat beside him was busy over, over a luminescent console. Dutch thought back to what the creature had told and shown him. It had come from a much larger starship. It had been transporting a dangerous cargo. Eggs that held a weaponized biological creature that had acid for blood. A true alien. <laughs> Something had gone wrong on the ship and some of the crew had been infected, resulting in the aliens taking over the ship. During the battle, the ship's controls had been damaged and the creature's section was jettisoned. It had spent days seeking out one of their craft stashed on Earth decades before. He had then sought out someone who could help its battle with the aliens. Dutch, the one human who had defeated one of its kind, an equal. They needed to take back the ship and stop it tumbling to earth and releasing the deadly alien plague. The creature turned to Dutch and pointed at the screen in front of them. Tumbling in the emptiness of space is a large spacecraft. Time to get ready, said the creature. A panel to the side of Dutch opens, revealing a number of strange weapons. It was time to go to war once again. And that's my long time. Oh, I love it. Now, see, that's how you make an Aliens versus Predator movie. Aliens yeah. versus Predator versus Arnold. I mean, that's, come that's on. That's what I mean, yeah. That's just... To be the biggest blockbuster in history. If they'd done that, it would have worked. Well, you had yours, you had Arnold going off into space fighting Predators. I've right, gone up right. fighting Aliens beside a Predator, so yeah. Yeah. That's how you have to do Aliens versus Predator. Have something more than the creatures from the original films to just link them together a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's cool. I like it. I like how you tied it into Aliens, which is, of course, the next film we'll be tackling. So that was yeah, a lot yeah, of fun. Was, you know, planning ahead. But also, I, know, I, know. Yeah, I just I just wanted to see Arnie buddying up, you know, a buddy film with an, a predator and then just loads of aliens going at them. Right. It could be, oh, wait, I got it. Pred Heat. Pred Heat. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, not one of Arnie's best films. No, no, no. but still. Yeah. I don't know. I kind of like that. Pred Heat. Pred, is Pred Heat. A little, well, yeah. little Arnie crossover there. Uh, excellent all right very cool all right well that's our endings for predator uh phil do you have any predator trivia for us yes i do uh, the predator blood was made on set and they used liquid from inside glow sticks and ky jelly peter cullen who was the voice of optimus prime did the voice of the predator and he sort of based it when he saw the design of the face he based it on the sound he'd heard when he was a kid and he'd seen horseshoe crabs and when they turned them over they made that hissing gurgling sound huh. um, arnie lost 25 pounds before filming to better fit the role of a special warfare operative because he wanted to be a bit leaner as well as you know muscly right uh, health and safety rules meant that arnie couldn't light a cigar inside the helicopter at the start so the glow that you see was added in post-production huh. uh, a bodyguard was hired for sonny landham who played billy 
and the bodyguard was there for the sole purpose of protecting people from Sonny because oh, right. he apparently has a bit of a he got a bit angry on set. Yeah, I've heard so. he's a bit of a loose cannon. Yes, yes. Oh, and one other thing, Jesse Ventura was delighted to find out from the wardrobe department that his arms were one inch bigger than Arnold Schwarzenegger's. So he <laughs> said to Arnie, uh, "Let's measure arms with the winner getting a bottle of champagne." Ventura lost because Arnie had told the wardrobe department to tell Ventura that his arms were bigger. <laughs> that's funny. So that's Predator. <laughs> All right. Nicely done. All right. Well, let's talk about Aliens, shall we, Phil? Yeah, Aliens, though, it was James Cameron took the formula laid down by Ridley Scott in the original Alien and jettisoned that formula, but keeping a little bit of it, but then just fused it with a war film and a mystery, you know, ghost story house kind of thing and did wonders with it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that sums it up nicely, actually. I don't have much more to add to that. I mean, James Cameron, I think, you know, everybody pretty much recognizes as a, as a pretty fantastic filmmaker. I, I think he's a very well-loved filmmaker. He's made some really seminal movies. And uh, Aliens is really just a classic in the sci-fi, action, horror, war genres, which is a lot of genres to cover with one film. It certainly is. But it was nice that he, just, he didn't just uh, rehash the original Alien film. He yeah. Did, he did go a different way with it, but still stayed true. It's yeah. It's been set up. Absolutely. Shall we jump into it then? Yes. Do you want to give us a little rundown? Sure. So Aliens, 1986, directed by James Cameron, starring Sigourney Weaver, Michael Bean, Paul Reiser, and a bunch of other muscly dudes, like you said, about Predator. And, and a couple of muscly, yeah. and, a, and some muscly women as well. Yeah. And it was an excellent cast. All involved did a brilliant job. Oh, and Bill Paxton. How'd I leave him out? Oh, okay. Well, because, right. yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, story goes... Uh, Ripley, aliens, lots of people die, um, and more aliens. And so <laughs> pretty yes, much. Yes, so yes. Ripley goes back to the planet. She is involved with this group of uh, colonial marines. They mostly die fighting the aliens. They ex escape from the planet, blow up the planet from orbit because it's the only way to make sure. Uh, there's a big fight with Ripley and the alien queen. Ripley wins. And in the end, Ripley and Hicks and Newt and half of Bishop, the, the android, uh, all survive and go to sleep in their cryopods, and that's the end of the film. So yes. much like Predator, don't need to get too involved because you know what happens in Aliens. Yeah, and at, at the end of Aliens, watching it for the first time, you see them, you know, sleeping in the, in the pods. You're going, oh, there's so much potential for where this can go next. Wow, it's going to be amazing seeing <laughs> Hicks and Newton and Bishop afterwards. What they're all going to do together? It's going to be amazing. Yeah, I feel like you know we should mention part of what the problem with Alien Three at this point is the first, the first, first, the first couple of minutes. Yeah, the first couple of minutes of of Alien Three, you find out that Ripley survived, but uh, Hicks and Newt are both dead from the crash of their ship on this prison planet, and God even knows what happened to Bishop. So, so the first five minutes of Alien Three basically negates the entire last half hour of Aliens, where where Ripley doing this kind of you know mother thing, trying to save this little girl from the aliens. You know, she she travels through hell to save this little a girl and then basically she dies in a car crash so yeah. almost off it's pretty much off screen as well it's completely off screen yeah. yeah i mean it's basically it and that's one of my biggest problems with that movie is with it you know they they just negate half of aliens it's like well what was the point then you know she, yeah. if they're gonna go through all that for nothing i mean it's just so such a downer to open the film with and it really didn't get any better from there so that's why we picked aliens so we could maybe do something a little better yeah, and it would have been interesting to see Neil Blomkamp's alien film, which was going to be called Alien Awakening, I think. But he, his plan was to have it set after Aliens and before Alien 3, but have Ripley and Hicks in it. So right. we'll never know how that was going to work out. But, you know, we're going to put that right. We're going to show what we think should have happened. Exactly. Because it's, it's the only way you can be sure. <laughs> exactly. All right, well, Phil, why don't you kick us off then and give us your day after. Okay. Ripley, Newt, Hicks, and the damaged Bishop sleep. Ripley never had much luck with hypersleep, and this time's no different. 
when they are picked up and awoken, they find that 176 years have passed. Wow. The spacecraft they are in is a scout craft for the remnants of the human empire. The crew using the advanced technology grow Bishop a new, tougher body and download his mind into it. Ripley is shocked to find that the crew are also androids, but, with, but all have human minds uploaded into them. They are all treated well, but find it odd that their questions about Earth are ignored. Newton Hicks had been going through the historical database. Ripley was arguing with the ship's captain, called Alfred, when Bishop calls them to the observation unit. The look of horror on his face makes them all pause. Then they look. It is Earth, but totally covered in xenomorph constructions. The planet is surrounded by planetary rings. Enhancing the images shows the rings are composed of xenomorphs of all sizes. There's billions, trillions, millions and billions, and well, there's loads of them. <laughs> yeah. We have to show you, says Alfred. They are planet killers. Earth is no more. Ooh, bleak. That's my, day, that's my day after. Dark, I like it, It's though. bleak, but Hicks and Newt and Bishop are all back to normal. So, you know. Right. No, you gotta, I like You that. know, everything's got a silver lining. You know, the whole entirety of human civilization is destroyed. <laughs> right. Right. But, but these three people have lived, yeah. so that makes it all okay. Yeah, there you go. Well, I dig it. What have you got for your day after? All right. Well, Ripley awakes from hypersleep with a start. She was in the middle of a dream where she was trapped on a prison planet with a really terrible haircut. <laughs> she groggily sits up and looks around. Hicks and Newt are waking up as well. Once they get their bearings, they realize that they're back in Earth's solar system. Before long, a medical freighter approaches them and offers assistance. Since Ripley, Hicks, and Newt were away from Earth for so long, they're subject to the standard three days quarantine aboard the medical vessel before they can return to Earth. Ripley informs them of Bishop's status as half an android, and they tell her they'll put him in for repairs. After a cursory medical exam and some treatment for their wounds, the three of them are placed into adjacent quarantine rooms. They spend a day in relative tranquility, just resting, watching video news from Earth, and getting back into the groove of a normal life. Then, in the middle of the second night, an alarm begins to sound. Um, and that's where I'm going to leave it for now. The alarms are always at night, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Mostly. Yeah, mostly. The alarms... <laughs> they mostly sound at night. Right. Mostly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, right. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> Why don't you share with us, then, your immediate aftermath? Because I want to see where we're going with this. Okay. After everyone had calmed down, Alfred explained that they're far enough away to not awaken the horde. He goes on to say how it was originally thought that the xenomorphs were a result of creatures created by a race called engineers, being genetically altered by some human-built androids later date. Turns out that was a stupid theory, he continues. <laughs> These things have been around longer than the engineers. They're like entropy made flesh. He goes on to say that the infestation of Earth was a result of a planet with the reference LNRP1E. But little more than that is known. There are still human outposts dotted around the galaxy, but much larger xenomorphs appeared more akin to living spacecraft. They hunt down the human outposts and unleash death. What can we do, asks Ripley. Nothing now, but maybe we can change the past, says Alfred. That's my immediate aftermath. Oh, so not only do we got some, some alien stuff going on, but we got maybe maybe have some time travel going on too. Yeah, I like maybe, it. Maybe, maybe. I like how, how you know, I, I went ahead and, and took a little of the piss out of Alien 3 and you did the same thing for Prometheus. It's kind of nice. <laughs> we, got, we both got our digs in. So. Yeah, you know. It's, I, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, you can't hide just the fact you don't, you know, you don't like them. No, no, I, I'm, I'm with you, man. <laughs> okay, well, what about your immediate aftermath then? Okay, so Ripley tries to get out of her quarantine room, but the steel and glass enclosure is like a prison cell. It only opens from the outside. She calls out to Hicks and Newt, and they respond that they're okay. As more alarms begin to sound, Ripley sees ship personnel rushing back and forth in the corridors. She pounds on the glass and tries to get them to let her free, but they ignore her. Soon, she hears distant explosions and the general sounds of complete chaos. Things go silent for a few minutes, and then Ripley's worst fears come true. An alien xenomorph enters the medical bay. She hears Newt scream as the alien comes closer to them and approaches the glass. 
It focuses on Ripley and begins to strike the glass with its tail. Ripley looks around for anything she can use as a weapon, but the quarantine room is devoid of anything useful. As the alien continues to attack the glass, it begins to splinter. It's not long before a hole appears in the glass. The alien is pushing hard, trying to get in. Suddenly, Ripley hears a voice coming from behind the creature. Get away from her, you bitch. Ripley instinctively ducks as a spray of fire engulfs the creature in flame. As it dies, Ripley sees who it is that's come to their rescue. Bishop. Yes. And that's, that's where we'll leave it for now. Bishop was always my favorite. Oh, yeah? I like Bishop. He's cool. Yeah. Lance Henriksen, though, I do like him in pretty much everything, even the oh, bad yeah. stuff he's in. Yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. He's always the, the you know, like, the even in a bad thing, he's the best part of it. Oh, yeah, you can't help but watch him. He makes he makes the best of a, a bad role and just, you just, you're just going, God, I wish the rest of this film was good. <laughs> right, right, exactly. All right, so, Phil, I want to hear about this time travel and alien setup you got, so give me your long term. Okay, Alfred goes over the plan. They'll build new bodies of Ripley, Hicks, and Newt, and, along with the ruined body of Bishop, put them back in the escape pod, Launch it on a course that will slingshot it around the sun, and with some new advanced time tech, the pod will be sent back to shortly after they launch from the Nostromo, but on a course to human habitation. The bodies would have the memories and personalities of them installed, and the pod's computer would be uploaded with details on the Xenomorphs. They couldn't have any of the memories that they have from the future included due to paradoxes and all that. However, with the information they'd have, they could stop the aliens coming from planet LNRP-1E. All agree that this is for the best. The pod is launched and sent on its course. They never saw it fly through a xenomorph egg cloud before it headed back in time. While all the adults watched the pod, Newt was looking over the mission documents. They hear her laughing. I solved it, she says. I solved it. Solved what? asked Bishop. L-N-R-P-1-A. It's L-N-R-P-L-E. Ellen Ripley. They look out at the path the pod took. It's too late. Ripley caused the alien infestation of Earth. Dun, dun, dun. I figured it out just before you said it. I was like, I got it. Yeah, well, you're <laughs> as good as a little girl. <laughs> Thank you. I've been told that many times, especially about my <laughs> podcasting skills and my fashion. So, yes, but that's uh, that's my long term. I like it. Very cool. Thank you. I like a little twist ending, a little time travel, lots of aliens. I dig it. Yes. Can't ask for more than that. Beats, yes. a, beats a bunch of dirty guys running around trying to kill an alien <laughs> with, you know, garbage cans. It certainly does. <laughs> okay, so that was mine. What about your long term? What happens with uh, with your film? Okay, well, Bishop frees Ripley and Hicks and Newt and fills them in on the situation. The Queen had planted some eggs on their ship, and there are three aliens now loose on the medical ship. Well, two, because Bishop just killed one of them. Good old Bishop. A good old Bishop. Bishop was luckily repaired before all hell broke loose, so he's back to being whole and immediately came to find them. He's cobbled together a makeshift flamethrower, as there are no weapons on the medical ship. Most of the staff has already been killed, and there are two more aliens on the loose. We need to get off the ship, Ripley says, but we have to blow it up. We can't let these things get to Earth. Bishop volunteers to rig the ship's engines to blow while the others escape, but Ripley refuses to split up her new family anymore. They make their way to the engine room, and Hicks and Ripley keep watch while Bishop rigs an explosion. Then they make their way to an escape pod. Just as they're loading onto it, the remaining two aliens attack. Bishop holds them off with the flamethrower while Ripley and Hicks and Newt get on board. But as Bishop tries to board himself, he's speared by an alien's tail. He looks at Ripley and says, Thank you for making me human. Then he pushes the launch button. The door slams shut and the escape pod launches. Ripley, Hicks, and Newt watch as the ship explodes in a massive fireball, taking Bishop and the remaining aliens with it. Is it over? Newt asks. Ripley and Hicks look at each other, unsure if it will ever be over. But Ripley replies, Yes, sweetie, I think it finally is. And that's my ending. Heroic sacrifice. Yeah. So I yeah. kind of wanted to give it like a happy ending, but I also yeah. wanted to kind of leave it open just a little bit, you know, because, 
as we know, yeah, things sometimes pop up and sequels, you know, yeah. will be made. Now that 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 one, yours in particular, makes a lot more sense as a sequel to Aliens because it's going it's going back. You've had like the you know the army bit for Aliens, and it's sort of like yours was a, a mix of the two. Yeah, I kind of was trying to get yeah. back a little bit to the first film where yeah. it's, you know, uh, you know, and if I if I had more time and budget, so to speak, <laughs> yeah. I kind of, you know, I was like, oh, how can we, we'll have Alien, you know, Ripley and Hicks and them fighting the aliens with hardly any weapons. That'll be fun. But then I'm like, well, that'll also take 12 minutes. So yeah. we'll just, you know, leave it to the imagination. And once again, though, not having like hundreds of aliens, it's just having having three of them would bring back how scary they are again. Right, right. Whereas exactly. instead of them just becoming numbers, yeah, they're back to the... Uh, the alien creature. No, I yeah. like it, though. Very good. Thank you very much. All right, well, how about some aliens trivia, Phil? What do you got? Okay, James Cameron filmed the scenes where we first meet the Colonial Marines last, so the camaraderie between them was uh, realistic because they'd, they'd spent weeks before filming. Very cool. Uh, Carrie Henn, who played Newt, she kept deliberately messing up her scenes in the duct so she could slide down the vents over and over again. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, the alien nest set was kept intact after filming and was later used as the Axis chemical set from 1988, 1989's Tim Burton's Batman. Huh, I never knew that. Uh, no, no, me neither until doing a bit of research. The 15-minute countdown at the end of the film is actually 15 minutes. Huh, cool. Which isn't always often the case in films. Yeah, it's usually very far from that. A lot of times, yeah, I love in the movies when it's like, you know, there's two minutes to defuse the bomb and it's 20 minutes of movie and you're like, maybe yeah, and you a, stretch and that And there's a flashback as well. They have a flashback. <laughs> right. I remember the last bomb I did. Sigourney Weaver's Best Actress Academy Award nomination for the film was the first ever for an actress in a role in an action movie. Al Matthews was in real life the first black marine to be promoted to the rank of sergeant in the field during service in Vietnam, and he plays the sergeant of the Colonial Marines. Oh, wow. That's cool. So that's really cool. And for James Cameron's Aliens, which features lots and lots of aliens, there were actually only six alien suits used, and they were basically just black leotards with the, some plastic prosthetic, plastic and rubber prosthetics over them. That's and crazy. It was all, all done to camera angles, lots and lots of slime to make them all look creepy and everything. So camera angles, judicious editing, and really good camera work. Yeah, boy, because it really does feel like there's a lot of them in most yeah. of the scenes. And you know? even though you know the people in suits, it's still they still have that alienness about them, like from the first one, instead of the CGI xenomorphs we've seen in later films, which just yeah, I don't know you. You just don't feel, you know, the CGI, it's still there, isn't it? It's still not quite. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's one of the things about the film. Like, I think it's easy to look back in hindsight now and go, oh, I know there's people in suits, but I I don't think a lot of people realize that. Mm. You know, I I think a lot of people maybe assume they were mechanical or just some kind of special effect, not necessarily a guy in a suit. Do you know what I mean? I mean, now we know that. There's only six of them, six of them in the whole of Aliens. That's crazy. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's such a well-done film, and what they, you know, and, and how he made it all work based on what he had to work with is, is super impressive. Yeah, but so people listening out there thinking about making movies and stuff, obviously we don't have the budget James Cameron does, but, you know, look at what he did with six guys, well, six men and women, uh, in black leotards and rubber prosthetics. It's all in what you do with the camera and in the editing. That's right, that's right. Yeah. Very well said, Phil. I like a little moment of inspiration brought to you by After the Ending. Yeah, and we'll take 5%. <laughs> or, you know, at least thank us in your Oscar speech. Oh, yeah, yeah, that'll do. I'll take that for now. Or we'll be in the film. Be in the right, film. that's fine. Yeah, or, you know, we, we're, we're known for writing good sequels. So, you know, if you want a little help crafting your screenplay or something, just give us a call. Yeah, we'll get in touch in our offices in uh, L.A. Right, oh, we've right. Got, we've got them all over, actually. There's one in each major city in the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. This is a global operation, you know. Just you just got to walk around any city shouting, Mike, Phil, where are you? <laughs> Oh, you'd get, you'd get a lot of responses. I don't know if they're the ones you'd want, yeah. but you would definitely get a lot of responses. 
Yeah, just for you know, legal reasons, don't actually go around somebody's doing that. <laughs> yeah, good advice. We're not responsible for anything that does happen to you right. if you do do that. Exactly. <laughs> legal disclaimer covered. All right. Yes. Okay, well, those are our endings for Aliens and Predator. We hope you enjoyed them. We sort of broke our rules about not doing films with sequels, but we thought it would be fun to tackle two of the, the big kind of movie heavyweights, the, the sci-fi action. Two, you know. two classics. And uh, I, Mike, I would love to watch both of you after the endings. They sounded brilliant. Likewise, I think those would be some really fun movies to watch. Get on that, Hollywood. Yeah, well, they're right there. We've just laid it all down the groundwork. It's out there now. All right. Well, let's move on then to our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes. Like you said earlier, Phil, we take a year from the first to the last 100 years of film, and we, we share our top 10 favorite films from that year. But this week, we're doing something a little bit different. Yes, we are going looking back over the 50 years we have already covered and doing our favorite top 10 films from those 50. Yeah, it's a pretty big list because we're not going in chronological order. We kind of skip around in our years. But here's the the comprehensive list of what years we've already done our top tens for. And it is 1917 all the way through 1941. So basically the first 20 some odd years of, of Hollywood. First yeah. 20 major years. Obviously yeah, yeah. Hollywood's been around a little longer than that. Uh, then we have 1945, 51, 53, 55, 63, 66, 67. 73, 74, 77, and 79, 81, 86, and then 1988 through 1991, 94, 97, and 99, and then we have 2001, 2005, 2009, 2011, 2012, 2014, and last year, 2016. So those are all the years we've covered. So we're covering the whole spectrum of uh, cinema Really, pretty much. Right, right, from 1917 through 2016. Now, there may be some films that you might expect to hear on this list that have been left off. That will likely be because, well, either A, it didn't make our list, or more likely B, because those films, those years, are not ones that we've covered yet. So uh, we'll be doing that in our next 50 episodes. Yes, so out of all those previous 50 years, we've had to narrow it down to our top 10. So it was very tough films. That's choosing, narrowing down 50 films. To a list of ten was very tricky. Well, it was, all almost, of them... it was actually more than that because some of oh, my yeah, yeah, yeah. some of my number two films from certain years I liked better than number one films from other years. Yeah, you know because some years were so good that your top one or two, you know, could have been, both been your favorites. So, and there were some years where the top number one was kind of like, yeah, it was pretty good. So, a couple of my films weren't even necessarily number ones. Yeah, it's believe a... it or not. No, but it's as a. It's, uh, it was a tough list, but it was a good one. Yeah, it was definitely a challenge to get it down to 10 films, but it was a fun challenge, one I enjoyed greatly. It certainly was always good going back over the, those years as well and seeing the films that were there. So many good ones. All right, Phil, why don't you go ahead and start things off and share with us your number 10. My number 10 is from 1951, and is it is The Day the Earth Stood Still. Excellent pick. Uh, directed by Robert Wise, star Michael Rennie and Gort. And we went after the ending for that one back in episode 32. Yes, indeed. It's a, it's a classic example of black and white science fiction. It's got a message as well, but it does, even though it's a blatant message, it does it so well and the acting's brilliant and the, the science fiction elements aren't actually, there's not that much of it throughout the film, but when it's there, they're just, you know, I, Gort's iconic and Klaatu Farada Nick 2 is just you know, it's iconic for a reason. It's just, it's just brilliant. Yeah, I agree. I, I do love that movie. Didn't make my list, but we're probably going to hear that a lot tonight, just because. Yeah, yeah. This, you know, getting us down to ten was <laughs> was not easy. But I do love the day the Earth stood still. So excellent choice. Okay, what have you got for your number ten? Well, my number ten, you'll probably be disappointed with me that it's only my number ten, but 
Uh, it's like I said, tough, tough list. So my number ten is 1973's *The Sting*, starring Robert Redford and Paul Newman. And everyone knows what a big, huge Robert Redford fan I am. Um, this is a film that we both love. We did, uh, we didn't do an after the ending for it, but we did talk about it in one of our uh, one of our mini episodes. Yeah. Um, and it's just you know, it's such a the, Newman and Redford together on screen are magic. It's a it's a heist like con movie which I've always loved. It's it's one of those films that just does every single thing right. It's fun and it's playful and it's charming and I mean just charm oozing out its ears really and uh, you know it's got that music it's just such a such a perfect perfect film I really absolutely love it everything works came together brilliantly in that film yeah so that's my number 10 an excellent pick no one is uh, it's I know how hard it was to do this list myself so it's going to be you know everything's fair game in this one but they're all going to be good films so right exactly okay my number 9 is another black and white film it's from 1933 and it is King Kong very good the original King Kong uh, we all know the story. An ape falls in love with a girl, heads to the big big city to impress her. Doesn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, that is he, one he way of summing out, up yeah, King Kong he, I haven't heard he before. He takes her out for a night on the town. <laughs> and, Things go badly. Yeah, yeah, I get attacked by mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, it's all, all a bit of a mess. But uh, it's, again, today this that's still like that one. It, this is a classic of sci-fi uh, and stop motion animation it's just too it's a great story kong is just an iconic design again I said iconic again but what the hell because it is i think you're going to hear that a lot in this list yeah, really let's uh, be honest uh, it gets so much emotion out of this stop motion creation king kong is king for a reason and it all started with this film yeah again i agree with you and that was on my short list i was definitely i had it down into my top 15 and i just i just edged it out so I don't know. I feel a little now. I feel a little bad about that, but uh, I do love that movie very, very much. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, well, it's uh, well, it's on my list, so at least it's in you know our top twenty. That's right, yeah. exactly. All right. Well, my number nine is a film we just talked about about five minutes ago, and it is 1986's Aliens by James Cameron. So, really, what more, more do I need to say about it? <laughs> it's yeah. um, it's fantastic. It is the movie that made me fall in love with this franchise, and that is a love that has continued to this day. You know, 30 years later, it's the reason I still go see movies that I know are going to be terrible, Prometheus. <laughs> and, you know, um, I, I, you know, just the other day I, I read some Aliens comic books and, and you know, like I said, I've, I've got the action figures and, you know, the T-shirts. You name it. I'm just a fan of this universe and it's all because of Aliens. Uh, it, it is just one of the greatest science fiction action movies of all time and I really love it. So that's my number nine. Uh, Axel Pick, it didn't make my list though, even though I do love it, but it's just there were so many other films as well. Sure. But, uh, yeah, so many good alien comics out there. Which, uh, if you haven't read any of them, they're well worth picking up some of the old graphic novels because uh, cracking stories. Yes. And the, the, the Alien vs. Predator comic books, some of them didn't have any dialogue in. It's just just brilliant artwork of a predator fighting some xenomorphs, and it's just right. beautiful. But well worth checking out. Okay, my number eight is an action movie from 1988. It is John McTiernan's Die Hard. Very nice. Uh, Bruce Willis in the wrong place at the wrong time for the first time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Nakatomi Plaza going up against the wonderful uh, Alan and Saturn Mist, Alan Rickman. As we said, already said, John McTiernan does amazing action scenes. And you've got the charisma of Bruce Willis. Great story. Alan Rickman just being oozing evilness and suaveness as the head of the uh, the thieves. Um, great scenes, great quotes, yippee ki And that's Die Hard. Oh, and it's also, also a, one of the best Christmas movies of all time. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, my number eight 
is the crow. Yeah, I, I knew it'd be on your list. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's one of those movies that I I love. I mean, it is a popular film. It was a, it was a big cult hit. Uh, I think that it's kind of fallen off the pop culture radar a little bit. But you know, I watched it over the years. I, I watched it just not that long ago. I think I watched it in the last year or so, and I it still hits me with that same punch it did the very first time I saw it, which is that it is this you know incredible action film with the sort of you know genre comic book trappings in it with you know the face paint and kind of the outfit and everything and then on top of that you have this love story to it that that drives the whole thing and it just it works for me on every level and i I do think you know ultimately what i love the most about it is what a spectacular action film it is and the the graphics you know the the way it looks the way alex proyas the director shot it um you know there's just so many great really cool you know five ten minutes of of you know fist fights and gunfights and all these things but there's so many great lines in the film and then at the at the at the end of the day there's all this heart to it and it's just a movie that i have a real real deep affinity for and um you know when i was going through making this list i, I wasn't sure where it was going to end up on there but i i knew it had to be in my top 10 there was no oh, question I knew, I knew it would be in your list yeah <laughs> that yeah. i was going to make it i i really do think it holds up extremely well and it's just a film that i i absolutely absolutely love so that's my pick yeah, I knew it'd be on your list, and you can hear us talk about that a whole lot more when we went after the ending back in episode 11. Yeah, that was an early one. And, and was... we also spoke to one of the stars of the film, so if you want to go back and after listening to this one, you can. Episode yeah. 11. Yeah, that's a good one. I'm, I'm a fan of that episode. Yeah, it was very good, that one. Okay, my number seven. It's a classic, which is often at the top of uh, you know all those you know best films ever. It's uh, 1941's Citizen Kane, which was uh, by a guy called Orson Welles, who he just did a few things on it. He was producer, co-screenwriter, director, and star. Uh, it's a mystery drama kind of film where you know, just, you know what's the mystery of Rosebud and who was you know Kane, and it takes us through the life of this man, shows him growing and everything. But it's just the way it's filmed and shot and the stories told. It's got so many. Technically, it's amazing. The acting's stupendous, and it's it's just it was different from so many other films from around about that time as well, with this sort of like pseudo documentary feel to it earlier on. And you're just getting bits and pieces, and you've got to put together this story, and you know find out what caused this 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 little boy to become this twisted dark man. But it's a it's a, once again it's a classic for a reason because it's supremely well made. And it's very, very good. Yeah, it, it's a classic for sure. Didn't make my list, but I, I do definitely have a strong appreciation for it. Well, it was one of those I was going, well, should have put it in the list. I was going, well, am I only putting it in the list because, you know, it's uh, all the other lists say, oh, it's a brilliant film. And I think, right. no, I really do enjoy it. I've seen it lots of times. I've seen it at the cinema a couple of times. And every time it's it's like the first time you're going, oh, wow. And you're doing that. You're standing up like clapping your hands like Orson Welles does in one of those scenes. You see? Right, right. Yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, and it's been referenced in so many films. I was watching an episode of the, uh, the real Ghostbusters cartoon on Netflix the day with my nephew. And it had, it basically had this ghost riding along on Rosebud, you know, for people who don't know what it is, you know, spoilers, it's a sledge. <laughs> And for it's those of us, yeah. for those of us in America who might not know what that is, it's also oh, yeah. a it's also a sled. Yeah, sled, That's, sled. Damn, I'm, damn I know they're close, but I think some people language. Some of our American listeners might be like, "What the hell is a sledge?" Yeah, I think this is a sledgehammer. <laughs> like a sledgehammer, yeah. right? Yeah. That'd be a weird thing to be obsessed about. Yeah, yeah I don't remember that. It's just a cane. Oh my god, the director's <laughs> right. cut. He's talking about this. Oh, that'd be even darker, wouldn't it? Some kid, you know, always wanted a sledgehammer. <laughs> right. Jesus. <laughs> What did he do with it? You don't want to know. You don't want to know. Exactly. <laughs> but that was my number seven. All right. Well, my number seven is from 1994, and it is The Shawshank Redemption, starring Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. Uh, and it's it's 
you know, it's one of those movies wasn't a big hit when it came out, and now it's widely considered by most critics and lists and, and IMDb yeah. and Rotten Tomatoes to be one of the greatest films of all time. And I certainly agree with that assessment. It is one of the greatest films of all time. It's just this amazing drama. And it's so what's so cool about it, I think, is that, you know, it's based on a Stephen King story, yet there's nothing that's a horror movie about it. I mean, aside from some prison-y type stuff, but it's it's really this drama about people in a prison and you know, yearning to be free and what that means and friendship and all this stuff. And I just, I love the film. It, it makes me ball like a baby. I love the ending of it. It's, it. It just strikes every note right. And the performances are amazing. So um, if, you, if you've never seen Shawshank Redemption, you really should because it is oh, one yeah, of the best yeah. films ever. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's great. It's, that's my number seven. Yeah, it's so, so many good things in that. It didn't make my list, but it's... Uh... It's yeah, it is a it is a superb film. Just uh, the, the feeling of time, you know, the, the setting. You get that feeling of when it it's set, even though it's in a prison. Yeah, for you sure. Just do it so well. Yep. Okay, my number six is from nineteen sixty six, and it is the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Ah, very cool. Yeah, a little western by Sergio Leone. It's just a short one. You can just pop it on, get it watched while you're having your breakfast. Right. <laughs> but no, Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Eli Wallach going into history with the you know the all time classic spaghetti western. With that brilliant soundtrack by Ennio Morricone, stunning cinematography, uh, some really bad dubbing, <laughs> but uh, but some you know the scenes you know just the, the eyes get so much without anything being said, it's just it's just stupendous. There you go, hard to argue with any of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, my number six is from 1986, and it is about as different from The Good, The Bad, The Ugly as it gets, but it is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, directed by John Hughes, starring Matthew Broderick, and uh, it's, it's to me, one of the greatest comedies of all time. Uh, we've talked about it on the show before, but it's a, it's a movie I've seen more than, I would say, most other films that I've ever watched. I, I, I really love it, and... I idolized Ferris Bueller when I was a kid. Like I wanted to be him. And I think there's definitely a large part of my personality, at least in my high school years that I based on the character of Ferris Bueller. And I would say maybe (laughs) even to this day, there's a a touch of Ferris in me. And I, I think it's Matthew Broderick's greatest role by far. And it's, and it's, it's definitely John Hughes is one of his greatest films. He's had so many, but uh, I just, I just love it. It, it, It's such a non-realistic look at what your day in high school could be like, but you always fantasize like, I could have that day. Like I could. Yeah, it's, a, it's a fantasy made real, isn't it? Right, right. That, thank you. That's exactly it. So I love that about it. And it's just one of the most fun movies ever. So that's my number six. And it does have the Sausage King of Chicago. That's right. And we went after the ending of Ferris Bueller, didn't we? We did, yeah. Back in episode 28, that was a Matthew Broderick double bill. That's right. Because we also did Lady Hawk. There you go. So Yeah, it's not often you have a, Ma- a Matthew Broderick double bill, but that's uh, not a bad one. It's not. Not at all. Do bow bow. Hey, that was actually a good impression, Phil. Yay! Yeah, I did a good impression of a little snippet of a tune. There you go. From the 80s. Not bad, not bad. You're moving up. <laughs> no, a very good pick. Didn't make my list, but no, it's another film I do love and adore. Absolutely. Okay, well, my number five is Goodfellas from 1990. Martin Scorsese showing us all uh, the glitz and glamour of being a gangster, along with you know how bad it actually is if you were a gangster. You know, it's not a good life. If anybody's considering becoming a gangster... Uh, probably not. Yeah, I don't recommend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, even though you know Ray Liotta's character does miss it, he does you know realize it's it wasn't the best thing. But it's again superbly well made. You got some of the some powerhouse performances. You got great you know shots. You know single shots. People getting shot. Lots of shots. <laughs> it's a wonderful piece of gangster movie, and it's also it's got a bit more warmth to it compared to some other Martin Scorsese films. 
Yeah, even though it's dealing with terrible which people, which isn't hard does, to do, really. But yeah, but I agree yeah. with you. Yeah, it's, it does. Even though you know it's still full of people's lives being destroyed and falling apart, it does have a little bit of warmth for a few minutes. Right, right, exactly. But that, that's my number five. All right, very good pick. Well, my number five. This is an interesting one for me because okay. this could have very easily been my number one. And, I, yeah. and I, I waffled back and forth, and somehow it, it kind of had to go either number one or number five, and that'll become evident as I move on as to why, because the, the films that are going to be my one through four, I think, are a sort of a different kind of film. Yeah, um, yeah. But this is easily one of my favorite movies of all time, and it's probably the least seen film on this list, and it is 1997's Gattaca, starring <sighs> Ethan Hawke and Jude Law and Uma Thurman, and... You know, this is a movie that didn't do very well in theaters. Uh, the director, Andrew Nichol, has made a bunch of films since then, none of which have been nearly as good. And it's yeah, it's yeah. a film that a, a lot of people haven't seen. And I love it so, so much. I can't even tell you. It is, to me, one of the most powerful movies ever made. It's about the human spirit, and it's about trying to, you know, break free from your limitations, which makes it sound all, like, lofty and everything. And I guess it kind of is, but... There's just something about that film that gets me every time I watch it, and I, I really do work hard to kind of convert other people to it. I will, I will like sit people down and be like, "Let's watch Gattaca because you need to see this film." Uh, it's like a religious experience for me, to be honest. I, I just think it's that amazing. Um, so it's a drama for sure, but it's got some science fiction to it. If you've never seen it, please do me a personal favor and and just. Take two hours of time and watch Gattaca. You will thank me for it. No, it's a, it is an excellent film. But I've only seen it the once. Thinking about uh, it, you right? really should watch I it again. Need to watch Phil. it again, yeah, because it was. I'm telling you, you're gonna you're gonna not remember yeah. how amazing. I know because I think is. it was only like a couple of years after it came out. I saw it, so it's been a long time. Yeah, I saw it in theaters. I'm happy to say I was lucky to see it in theaters, and I've yeah. watched it on my home video several times, and it never lets me down. No, I'll have to. Yeah, I'm definitely gonna have to watch that again. But no, an excellent choice. Great. Okay, my number four is. A film by Quentin Tarantino from 1994. It is Pulp Fiction. Excellent choice. He takes all these gangsters, boxers, femme fatales, drug dealers, and a briefcase full of something and mixes it all up, makes us jump through time. Oh, yeah, and there's some hillbillies doing obscene things in a basement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but mixes it all up, the timeline, but he does it in such a way where... When you saw it for the first time, you go, and I've never seen anything like this before, even though chopping and changing timelines has been done in films for, you know, many, many years. But he does it he does it in the Tarantino way with that pumping, cool, chilled out soundtrack with you know, snappy dialogue, you know, given by Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta and Yuma Thurman, just and Bruce just it's just phenomenal. I said phenomenal again, probably lots of times. <laughs> but it also it's also got that beautiful scene with a uh, where they are in the pawn shop and Bruce Willis has escaped, but he's he's going picking up a pistol and a baseball bat and a pistol. He's basically doing what you do in video games. He's he's going through all the weapons, leveling up and get until he gets to the best weapon, the samurai sword. And uh, I just love all those kind of things. And it's just it's got so many quotes, so many scenes, and it's so rewatchable. It's brilliant. I agree wholeheartedly did not make my list actually i i love it it was in my short list again i mean i think every every movie on your list so far has been on my short list but yeah, um, yeah, we'll I, yeah. I did leave that one out and we also well went after the ending with that one back way way back in episode nine yeah that's right that was the, that was when we did our very first installment of yeah. 100 years of hollywood and 100 episodes so that kind that's of a momentous did, episode I feel like that's the episode where we really became what we are today. Yeah, so if you want to go back and listen to that and blame it on that one, you can. Because right. we, also, we also went after the ending of The Last Starfighter. And the first decade, no, the first year we did for our top ten was 1986. There you go. So lots of good films there. All right, very cool. Well, my number four is The Matrix, 
starring Keanu Reeves, which everyone knows. Um, and we just talked about this recently because I think we did 1999 not that long ago. But uh, yeah, I, I yeah. love this movie. The the sequels, of course, uh, you know, not so much. But this first one, I just watched it again. Um, a few months ago after having not seen it in a few years and I've seen this movie dozens of times and I'd forgotten how much I love it until I rewatched it and it was just it sort of reawakened to me that I was like yes this is one of my favorite films ever I I when I watch it I get sucked into it and I I love it I mean just what it did was so groundbreaking with the visual effects but the action sequences the way they're filmed with the use of slow motion which is a, a dying art yeah and the whole bullet time thing yeah the bullet time that. thing and just the whole concept of the film you know that we're living in this matrix i mean it, it is just amazing and and that sequence in the, the the lobby of the building still holds up as one of the most visceral and exciting action film sequences in, in film history yeah well after you talking about it the the, the week i i got sent it in like a bundle of films from warner brothers and uh, right. i watched it watched it again because uh, being a few years since i'd seen it yeah and i, I love the hell out of it it was uh and not that i'd forgotten it but it's just you realize how even now it still still stands up in the fact you know, they're using all those uh, flip phones, all, you know, the different archaic, right. you know, the t- different technology. It doesn't matter. It's not going to date because it's in the Matrix. Right, exactly. And it's it's, it's just because it's just, and even the scenes when you see the real world. Yep. It still, it still all holds up. Yeah, it really holds up surprisingly well for being, yeah. uh, you know, a, an effects-heavy film that's almost 20 years old now. But uh, I do really love it, and I, I don't think I'm alone in that. Obviously, it was a, a worldwide phenomenon, so I know a lot and of Lawrence people Lawrence Fishburne is, is so slim. Yeah, I know. That's, that's a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he yeah. definitely. No uh, offense, but he, he really. That's, I went like that. I went, oh my god, yeah, he was. He did the fight, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and Keanu Reeves hasn't changed a day. No, no, he really hasn't. Okay, my number three is one that's already been mentioned on yours. It is 1973's The Sting. I knew that would be on your list. <laughs> yeah, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. You've said it all. It's everything comes together and it works magic. And it's just if everything from the set design to the you know the mise-en-scene and i love the bit when got the finger on the nose it's that's the signal to each other all yeah. that kind of stuff you know you, you sort of want that with your friends you know have that as little it's the kind of things you in real life you want oh but then you have to be a con man right. and you have to get you know you know the chance of being arrested yeah yep. but it does it does when you're watching it you do go i want to do that i want to do this i want to learn play cards and then you pick up cards and realize how long it'll take <laughs> and how little patience you've got yeah but it's uh, everything is just so so good yes and it's uh, it's always good watching it with someone who hasn't seen it before and then when the end scene happens they all go oh, right. oh right, right. exactly yeah. Very good pick. All right. Well, my number three has appeared on your list already, and it is 1988's Die Hard. Um, and, you know, I mean, like you said, we, we've we've talked about it before on the show. I don't have to say too much about it. I will just say, to me, it is single-handedly the greatest action film of all time. You know, I, I don't count, you know, things like Matrix or Aliens because they're science fiction action. But as far yeah, as just a yeah. straight action movie goes, I think not only is Die Hard the greatest action film of all time, but I think it really was – it was so impactful – that it then became the next 20 years of action films was other people trying to do Die Hard, you know, Die Hard yeah. on a mountain, Die Hard on a bus, Die Hard, you know, it's, it's as so many movies came after that really just wanted to be Die Hard. And I think that speaks to what an impactful film it is that, you know, it really. Well, even now, even now we're getting it on where you get your hair about new films yeah, being in development and it's like Die Hard in a prison. Yeah, right. Yeah, that, it's still the reference point going. Yeah, that's how it's, it's shorthand for like one guy. In a tough place, as to fight bad guys, right? And hard. Yeah, and it's not like that. That was the first film ever to do that, but I think it was the first film to do it 
so well. And like you said, you've got John McTiernan, who's an amazing action director. You had Bruce Willis, who was just magnetic on screen and really was, you know, a real screen presence. He had such a great bad guy. He had the humor, you know, with all the the extra characters and stuff. It just it was the first film I think that really put it all together in such a great way and turned yeah. it into a blockbuster the way that it was. And it's just a movie that I will never ever ever get tired of watching. And it's it's nice as well. It's. Uh... It's another one of those films which hasn't really dated, even though the hair and the you know the shoulder pads do give it away in places. It still it still works. Even yeah, it doesn't take anything we have, we away have, from it. Yeah, today's uh, special effects and makeup and things. It's it doesn't matter. We still you can still watch Die Hard and go, wow, it's yeah, brilliant. I'm know? I'm glad Die Hard was made before CGI. To be honest with you, because yeah. like the Nakatomi building exploding would not have been the same if it was CGI flames. You know, there are some yeah. things that there are some movies that I'm I'm super glad were made before the advent of CGI. You know, CGI has done a lot for a lot of great films, but yeah. it also doesn't always work. And you know, the CGI blood and everything it just doesn't, you know, I, I think Die Hard would have not been as good a film without it being as real as it was. Definitely so and it's good you know having loads of squibs going off and blood packs flying out with real Real stuff on the set, right. exploding, and yeah, I think you're right. It is one of the best action films of all time. Thank you. My number two uh-huh. is in the top two. It's mine. It's a pulp action film, so yeah, it's different, but it is 1981's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Very good. More of an adventure film, in my opinion. Yeah, advent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that's a fine line, but there's definitely to me. I don't think of Raiders as like a straight action. film. No, nah, you're right. You know? It's not. Die Hard's an action film. Raiders is an action adventure film. Right. Right. With a guy in a hat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, we all know Steven Spielberg, Harrison Ford, Ark of the Covenants. It's become a piece of the furniture, but you know that, that really cool piece of comfy furniture. You can't wait to sit in again and right. just watch and have all those brilliant moments from the the opening scene of Indy turning, you know, silhouetted, and then he turns around and throwing me the whip, being pulled behind the the truck. Oh, everything. I'm losing track of everything. I can't even think of the film. <laughs> it's just all good. Uh, it, shooting the guy is. because Harrison Ford had a you know a bit of a dodgy tummy or the flu, and he wants to make the scene. Oh, it's it's legendary the film, and it's all so good. And I have lovely memories of watching it with my my grandmother, and she hadn't seen it, and she was just laughing all the way through whenever Indy punched a guy or kicked him out of a, <laughs> right. a truck. I, I think she was a bit twisted in a way when it came to humour, <laughs> but uh, but no, so many good memories watching it with with friends and families. Uh, I think I watched it a couple of years ago in my brother's garden. He had a screen set up and it was late and sunny. It had been a sunny day and it was warm and we were drinking beers and then Raiders of the Lost Ark was on. And you, you don't get much better than that. No, you really don't. Well, I will reveal that we are on the same track here. My number two, though, is a tie, <gasps> and it is between Raiders of the Lost Ark and 1989's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Ooh. And the reason I made it a tie is, well, they're both Indiana Jones films, but if I'm being honest, my favorite film in the trilogy is Last Crusade. It is the one I love the most, and it is one of those movies, if it's on TV, it will stop me at what I'm doing, and I will sit down and watch it. Um, I just, I love it. It is, to me, the culmination of everything that makes Indiana Jones great. It's that perfect balance of adventure and humor, and you add Sean Connery, and you add River Phoenix, yeah. the whole prequel bit and everything, and I love it. But I also didn't feel like I could leave Raiders of the Lost Ark off, and I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. It is one of the greatest movies of all time. So I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm putting them both on my list, and it's a tie at number two. So so there you go. So I'm with you on that, but I'm adding in Last Crusade as well. No, fair play. You're right. It has got some... Really good moments on the on the River Phoenix prequel, but it was a uh, was a nice touch. Yeah, it's brilliant. I quite like that. Yeah, it really is. But no, Sean Connery was brilliant. He was a an excellent 
piece of casting for Indy's father. Yes, indeed. Junior. <laughs> That's good. I think we might have the same number one. I have a sneaking suspicion that we do. I, I don't think this one's going to come as a surprise to anybody who's ever listened to this podcast or really anybody who knows anything about movies and pop culture. But go ahead, Phil. Why don't you reveal what it is? Yes, it is. Flubber. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> Flubber. No, we, we had to rule out Flubber because we knew it would be number one. Right, so right. Yeah, right. It's Flubber. in the penalty box. Yeah. Uh, people are now going, which which flub are they talking about? The original black and white one with Fred McMurray or the Ron Williams one? Oh, right. I'll never Spoiler, tell. It's neither. <laughs> okay, it's, uh, yeah, neither. <laughs> it's Son of Flubber. <laughs> oh, people are going to no, hate us. <laughs> uh, my number one is from 1977, a little uh, American sci-fi film by a, a guy called George Lucas, Star Wars. That is my number one as well. Yes. Literally the least surprising pick we could possibly make. Yes. But that's okay yeah, we, because it's Star Wars. It's about episode four, A New Hope, but back when it first came out, it was just Star Wars, and that's what it always will be. We all know the story. But for those of you who don't, I'm going to go right through it all, know the whole script. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to break it down point by yeah, point. Yeah. So there's this kid, right? He's on a desert planet. <laughs> and his, his, his father, though, going way, way back, was also a kid on a desert planet. <laughs> he didn't like sand. Yeah, and then there's George R. Binks. We'll get back to him later. <laughs> right. uh, no, but yeah, Star Wars is our number one, and probably on many other people's number one if they've been playing this game at home. Yeah, I have so many reasons though, but it's because it just it was the it was it wasn't the first summer blockbuster, but it was the one that sort of solidified the whole thing. But it's also such an eminently enjoyable science fiction space opera full of heroes, rogues, bad guys, aliens. I made you know the lightsaber with it. Even the sound effects nowadays are just you just hear that sound and it's there. And in fact, it's still so even more popular than it ever was. Just shows what a monster George Lucas created with it. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing about Star Wars is not only did it revolutionize filmmaking, which it obviously did, but I think people forget how much it revolutionized the science fiction genre, which is now pretty much the most popular genre. I mean, if you look at your top ten films of any given year, it's mostly you know yeah. comic books and science fiction blockbusters, that type of stuff. And you know, before Star Wars came out, a lot of science fiction was either a super cheesy or b just filled with like cookie cutter characters. You know, it wasn't a, a really popular genre. It wasn't a powerhouse genre. Yeah, well, they were always always pretty much the B-movie, weren't they? Right, exactly. And then Star Wars came along and it introduced these characters who were instantly different and lovable. And, you know, Han Solo was this rogue and Luke was this kid and Princess Leia was this tough, you know, kick-ass, you know, princess. And it just, yeah. it, it just and, really... And Darth Vader. Yeah, such a great, I mean, an amazing bad guy. And the look of it and everything, it really just became sort of the norm in American blockbuster filmmaking. And so I just don't think you can overstate its importance in the history of film. But beyond that, it's just a movie that I absolutely love. I mean, I love the entire franchise. I love the universe. I've been a diehard Star Wars fan pretty much my entire life. And I, I probably will continue to be for the rest of my life. So I don't see how it could have been anything else at number one. Yes, but we also must say a big shout out to uh, Akira Kurosawa's the Hidden Fortress from 1958, starring Toshiro Mifune, because George Lucas did lift a few elements from that. Sure, sure. Yeah, but uh, but Star Wars is number one for a reason. Everybody listen. You don't need my explanation. You've all got your own explanation <laughs> to why it's number one. Exactly. Don't let us do all the work. Right, that's right. You guys got to participate <laughs> a little bit here. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. So that's it. There you yeah, go. Wow. Yeah. So that is our 100 years of Hollywood in 100 episodes, our 50th uh, episode spectacular retrospective, whatever you want to call it, uh, look back yeah. over the first 50 years that we've done. We've got 50 more years to go, uh, which we're going to do over the next 50 episodes, and that will culminate in a big 100th episode spectacular. So uh, we hope you're going to stick around and listen to each and every one of those episodes. Yes, because every single one of them is magic. Is going to be better than average. <laughs> there you go. That's right. <laughs> we do strive to make everyone better yeah. than the one before it. Yeah, and that's that's an after the ending guarantee. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Phil, we'll be back next week with another episode. Why don't you tell people what we're going to talk about then as we get back into a more regular format? Yes, next week we'll be doing our top 10 films of 2002 and going after the ending of, wait for it, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and wait for it even more tension rising showgirls oh yeah uh, that is that's going to be all sorts of interesting i think <laughs> yeah there's going to be some strange things going on in the swimming pool <laughs> yeah yeah that'll that'll uh, that'll be interesting i don't know if we've tackled a movie quite like that just yet so it should be interesting yeah. to see what it sounds like but don't worry we'll as always we'll keep it clean yes Always safe for work when listening to us. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, then, it is time that we wrap up our 50th episode spectacular. So, as always, we'd like to thank you for listening, but we'd like to give you an extra special heartfelt thank you this time, especially those of you who have been listening from the beginning and have, have tuned into us every single week uh, for 50 whole episodes now. We are excited about bringing you the next 50, and, uh, yeah, we're having fun, so we're going to keep on doing this. We're going to keep on keeping on going after the ending of so many films, and as they keep on making films and time keeps moving forward there's always going to be films we can go after the ending that's right and we can always cheat like we did today if we need to so <laughs> yeah yeah if there's a film we really want to do or that you want to hear us do get in touch let us know we're on all the social media channels well find us after the ending podcast you'll find us on you know out there yeah yeah we're not hard to track down then in that case we will sign off now i am mike spring and i'm phil edwards and we'll see you next week after the ending Testing, testing, one, two, three. Check one, check two. Restarting recording after aborted recording because of hair noises. Yes, those damned hair get everywhere. <laughs> That's a first. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, alien. it's funny, though, a video game has captured the alien that we all really want. And right. Yeah, I'm running out of steam now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're like the Twin Peaks of uh, podcasts. <laughs> Oh my god, it's all going to get strange now. The owls aren't looking at me. <laughs> Moving on. So yeah. Let's, uh, let's uh, move Hoorah! on to. Yeah. Oh, there's Al Pacino. He's just coming on. <laughs> there you go. We're going to get them all in tonight. <laughs> okay, so wow. let's talk about. <laughs> all right, well, let's talk about Aliens, shall we, Phil? Yes, Aliens. A real good film. <laughs> All right, very good. Okay, well, my number seven is from uh, some year. <laughs> oh, that's my favorite year. I didn't write the years down next to them. So. Neither did I, but I'm quickly Googling it. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. Were you waiting for, like, dramatic tension there? No, I realized I was taking a drink. Just oh. the, and I was thinking to myself, going, why are you drinking now? <laughs> yeah, kind of poor timing. Yeah. You knew what I was going to say. Yeah, I know. All right. I'll give you, I'll just do that one more time so you have a nice clean take on that. Okay. And we'll see you next week. No, I didn't like that. After. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Okay, here, well, that then. What was that? I was doing a part of the thing, you know. <laughs> over here, over here. <laughs> oh, I. <laughs>
sound like a different kind of predator. Yeah, like, like so. the kind of predator who drives yeah. around like a wood paneled yeah. van. Oh, good God. Blacked out windows. I imagine that you see one of the actual predators driving a van. <laughs> okay, kids, come inside. The predator's coming out again. <laughs> Want some candy? That's, that's predator too, isn't it? He says that. Yeah, that's, I don't know what. That sounds like something from Family Guy. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, sure, hell no. Right. <laughs> Imagine a predator with that voice coming yeah. out of it. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are you? <laughs> You're one ugly mother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 